Good evening, church family. Uh, thank you so much to Gary and the team for leading us uh, so well this evening and preparing our hearts for this passage this evening. If you do have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, and we'll be looking at the first 32 verses. Uh, just to remind you of where we are in Mark's narrative. Uh, in the previous chapter, we saw how Jesus was arrested by the religious leaders. Uh, he was abandoned by his disciples. Peter denied him three times. And he was unjustly tried and condemned and abused by the religious leaders of the Sanhedrin. In our chapter this evening, things don't get any better. Here we see how he is handed over to Pilate to be tried. We find that he's despised and rejected by the religious or by the Jews, and we see that he is ultimately scourged, uh, crucified, and mercifully, mercilessly mocked. Uh, I'll be honest, I, I struggled this past week. Uh, certain passages of Scripture are holy ground, and this is one of them, uh, a passage that we must be very wary when we come to because no sermon can do justice to it. And so we would do well to come with reverence this evening to this passage. Make no mistake about this. This is a dark and disturbing chapter because here we see the beloved Son of God hated and humiliated by sinful men, sinful men like you and me. And so before we read, I actually want to pray again. I know Gary has thankfully prayed for us. I want to pray again that as we approach this passage, we would read it with the reverence that it deserves. And so would you read with me Mark chapter 15, verse 1 to 32. This is God's word. Let's hear it. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes in the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner, for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in their insurrection, there was a man named Barabbas. And the crowd came and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to to have him released for, for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to him, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. 
And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with the reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him away to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he, had, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of the Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Only so far in God's word may he reform our lives to its truth. I've heard crucifixion being described as dying two deaths. It's described as dying two deaths. Not only is your body put to death slowly and painfully in a torturous manner, but your name is put to death. Think about it. Not only were you scourged, not only was the flesh ripped off you, and not only were nails driven through your hands and your feet, but you were hung up naked for all to see. You were publicly displayed so that you'd be made a spectacle of, that people can behold you in all your shame and mock and ridicule and despise you. I realize in a culture of shame like that of Jesus' day, to die by way of crucifixion is to have your name killed. It's to have your reputation become a cursing. It's to have your name be humiliated and shamed. Did you notice as we read our passage that Jesus, that Jesus being shamed and mocked and humiliated is actually the emphasis of the text? Mark, in fact, says very little about the crucifixion. He doesn't mention how it happens and how a person dies. He doesn't mention many details. No, Mark, quite simply, in a pedestrian manner, says, and they crucified him. In contrast, however, Mark exerts himself to describe in as much detail as possible how Jesus is shamed, how he is mocked and ridiculed. In fact, that's true of this entire passage, not just the crucifixion. Did you notice a phrase or an idea that ties this entire passage together? Six times in this narrative, the fact is highlighted that Jesus is described as the King of the Jews. You see that verse 2, 9, 12, 18, 26, 32. And you realize he isn't being honored as the King. He is being mocked. He's being ridiculed. He's being made a, a, a cursing. 
Now, the question to wrestle with, as we consider this text, the, the question that I wrestle with is, why? Why does Mark focus on Jesus' shame? Why focus on his humiliation? Well, this evening, I want to answer that question. As we look at our text, I want us to see three ways in which Jesus is shamed as the king of the Jews. And in each of these pictures, they offer us a helpful lesson about how we sin against, how we are saved by, and how we serve King Jesus. And this evening, I want to do things a little bit differently. I want to start at the end of our passage and work our way forward. And so in the first place, I want you to see this evening that Jesus is a ridiculed king. A ridiculed king in verse 16 to 32, Jesus is being made a spectacle of. He, after being scourged, which left his body broken and bloody, Jesus is paraded and mocked as a king. He, he is brought before a Roman battalion, about 600 men, and they end up spitting on him and striking him and abusing him. And the abuse doesn't stop when Jesus is on the cross. Now, as he hangs there naked and bloody and broken and ashamed, insult is literally added to injury. Uh, people pass by wagging their heads at Jesus. Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, they mock. Come down from the cross. Even the religious leaders aren't too far off. He saved others. They don't even address him. They, they speak of him in his presence. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down, they say, from the cross that we may see and believe. Uh, the Roman soldiers, of course, aren't far off. They too mock him. Luke 23, 37 says, one of them says, if you are the King of the Jews, save yourself. Even the men crucified alongside Jesus ridiculed him. Matthew 27, 44, the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. In fact, Luke 23, 39 says, one of the criminals who were hanged at, beside him railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Again and again, Jesus is mocked. He's ridiculed as king. He's, he's mocked as if he is some impotent, weak, useless king who can't even save himself. Now, now despite the, the brutality of this event, despite the, the mockery and the, the cruelty of how Jesus is treated here, what are we meant to learn here? That is, what are we meant to learn from Jesus' shame as a ridiculed king? Well, may I suggest to you, we are here given another glimpse of the wickedness of sin. In this passage, the irony is palpable. It's unavoidable. You have to see the irony in this passage. On the one hand, Jesus is mocked as a king. Yet, if you've read the gospel so far, if you've seen all of Jesus' work, you know that he is king. He's displayed his kingship again and again. His authority over nature. His authority to heal the sick. His authority to cast out demons. He is king. Yet on the other hand, Jesus is also mocked as a savior. And again, if you've read the gospel so far, 
You've heard all of Jesus' words. You've heard that he is the Savior who saves by not saving himself. Who saves by, by giving himself as a ransom. You see, if you've read the gospel so far, you know that Jesus is a king who saves. Yet, yet those who are busy mocking him, those who are busy contemptuously reviling at him, they're completely blind to who he is. Their understanding is darkened. They're alienated from the life of God. They're hardened in their hearts. And dear friends, therein lies the wickedness of sin. Sin blinds us to who Jesus is. It, it leads us to treat him with disdain as a mock king. It, it leads us to, to reject him as the true and rightful king. That's what sin does. That's sin by its nature. See, we must remember that while the cross is the greatest display of God's love, we know John 3.16, it's also the greatest display of our sin. It's the greatest display to the depths and the heights and the wickedness of our sin. As Stott said, there's nothing reveals the gravity of sin like the cross. Walter Chanty, in one of his books, comments on Psalm 2. And he points out that the nations raging against God in his anointed finds its partial fulfillment at Calvary. Uh, Chanty points out this. Many lessons are taught us by the cross of Calvary. One of which, one which no one can fail to recognize is the deep malice which is found in the human spirit. There is a dark, Vicious depravity in the human heart, which focuses its corruption, its corrupt passions against the Lord and His Messiah. The, the pernicious mischief is joyfully attempted deicide. I, I think I'm making that my new working definition of sin. Sin is a pernicious mischief that joyfully attempts deicide. In other words, it's an attempt to kill God. It's an attempt to, to rid ourselves of His kingship, to, to joyfully ridicule His reign by doing what we know opposes Him. That's what we see at the cross. And dear friends, may I suggest to you, that's how we ought to see every single sin. Every sin is a microcosm of the, of the sin that we see at the cross. Every sin, in every sin we try to rid ourselves of Christ's kingship. In every sin we, we joyfully ridicule Him in His reign. Every sin is an attempt at deicide. And, and so the question is, is, is that how you see sin? Do you see the vileness and the wickedness and the, the gravity of what sin actually is? That if given the opportunity, it would put the Son of God to death. It would kill God if it could. If you don't see sin that way, look at Jesus on the cross. Look at his shame upon the cross. And behold the wickedness of our sin. Behold what mankind did to the Son of God. And when you see His shame on the cross, when you see all that He endured for our sin, 
then let that make you be ashamed of sin. Uh, Oh, dear friends, sin is shameful. Uh, Let us be horrified and repulsed by sin as we look at the cross. Let us repent of it and kill it because it is so vile. It is so wicked, isn't it? It is joyfully attempted deicide. As that song by Stuart Tynan says, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there. Make that collective, it is our sin. And so when we think of Jesus' shame as a ridiculed king, let us realize the wickedness of sin. Let us see how shameful it is. And let us repent of it. Let us see his shame, shame that ought to be on us for our sin. And let us be repulsed by it. That's the first thing I want you to see, Jesus as a ridiculed king. The second thing, I want you to see not only does he, is his shame seen in him being a ridiculed king, but he's actually a rejected king. He's a rejected king in verse 6 to 15. We find this interesting account where Jesus is presented to the Jews by Pilate. And Pilate, knowing that the religious leaders are motivated by envy, he tries to release Jesus as he's done with many other prisoners before. Yet by the instigation of the religious leaders, the Jewish crowds reject Jesus and in choose stead Barabbas, a, a known insurrectionist, a known murderer. Now, there's a clear play on words here. Uh, Bar- uh, Barabbas, uh, as you pick up in from the Hebrew, means son of the father. And so the question becomes, which son of the father do you want released? Do you want the insurrectionist released or the innocent son of God? Did you want the murderous Barabbas released or or the meek Jesus sent from the Father? And it's not merely the case that they they choose Barabbas over Jesus. It's the fact that they want to vie for blood. Twice they cry out, crucify him, crucify him. See, Jesus isn't just merely a, a ridiculed king but he shamefully, horrendously rejected by his people. Uh, we know John 1, 11 reminds us he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. That's what we do when we sin. Remember, we fail to receive him. We fail to walk in his ways. We decide to go our own way. But again, the question we're meant to ask is, is what are we meant to learn here? What are we meant to learn here from Jesus' shame as a rejected king, despite the fact that we see again the wickedness of sin? What else must we learn? Well, amidst the vile and malicious sin that we see, we have to read Mark's narrative theologically. Uh, The irony that we see is meant to pique our theological uh, intuition. We're meant to see here again the, the wonder of substitution. 
Think about this beautiful passage we actually, it's, it's beautiful in a sense. It's horrible in the one hand, beautiful in the other. Here we see how a convicted murderer is set free while the innocent son of the father is condemned to death. I think through that theologically, why does Jesus, as the rightful king, decide to make the cross his throne? Why does Jesus stay on the cross, refusing rather to save himself? Because he's our substitute. He, he, he takes our place. He, he purchases our salvation. He, he takes our sin upon himself so that we would find salvation. He's our substitute. As 1 Peter 3.18 reminds us, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. Or remember Isaiah 53.5, He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquity. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. Dear friends, let us never lose sight of the wonder of these truths. Let us never lose sight of the joy of substitution. That God would send His Son to take our place. That the Son of glory would take the curse of man upon Himself. See, if Jesus doesn't take our place, the gospel stops being good news. If someone doesn't stand in for you, you're in trouble. And so rejoice. Wonder and be amazed at the beauty of substitution. Listen to J.C. Ryle on this. Let this quote renew your heart. Let it refresh your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Was he condemned, the innocent? It was that we might be acquitted, though guilty. Did he wear a crown of thorns? It was that we might wear the crown of glory. Was he stripped of his clothing? It was that we might be clothed in everlasting righteousness. Was he mocked and reviled? It was that we might be honored and blessed. Was he reckoned a criminal, numbered among transgressors? It was that we might be reckoned innocent and and justified from all sin. Was he declared unable to save himself? It was that he might be able to save others to the uttermost. See, just as the wickedness of sin compels us to repent, the wonder of Jesus' substitution compels us to rejoice. It compels us to to look to Jesus as our Savior. It compels us to to rely upon Him in our struggles, in our sin, in our wickedness. It calls upon us to throw ourselves at His feet. I, I don't know where all of you are this evening, but let me ask you, are you enslaved to sin? Are you troubled with the guilt of your sin? Are you left filthy and broken because of your sin? Do you feel that shame that your sin causes? Those many, many repeated sins, you've asked forgiveness and you've fallen into them again. Will your sinner rely upon your Savior? 
who, who goes to the cross, who enters into your shame, the shame that should be on you, and he takes it upon himself to save you from the guilt and the shame and the punishment of your sin. Oh, what a Savior. There's an old hymn that says, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And so, notice that Jesus is a rejected king, but rejoice in him as your substitute, your Savior. In the third and final place, let's note the fact that Jesus' shame is seen in the fact that he's a restrained king. He's a restrained king. In verse 1 to 5, we see how Jesus is bound and delivered over to Pilate. In fact, from the start to throughout this passage, all the way to the end, Jesus is passive. He is acted on by others. Contrary to what is usually true of kings who are sovereign and do what they want when they want, Jesus isn't. He's bound. He's delivered. He's handed over. He's at the mercy of others. And again, if you read the gospel so far, if you've read Mark so far, you know that Jesus himself allows this. He allows himself to be at the mercy of others. Why? Because he's yielding himself to the plans of his father's father. He, he's yielding himself to the purposes of salvation. Luke 22, verse 22, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Determined by who for what? The Father, to give His Son for us. Uh, we saw in Gethsemane where Jesus prayed, not, not my will, but your will be done, right? Well, here we see how that prayer is, is played out. Jesus goes as has been determined. He yields Himself to the evil, wicked plans of evil men, but in so doing fulfills the, the plans of his father. And, and you see this particularly if you note all the Old Testament references in this passage. Uh, we could preach a whole sermon on this, but let's note quickly uh, how uh, God's plans are fulfilled, how prophecy is fulfilled, how God's plans are worked out. Uh, in, in Jesus' silence, in verse 4, we, we see it fulfilling Isaiah 53, 7. Uh, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Or Jesus abused by the soldiers, verse 15 and 19 fulfills Isaiah 56. Uh, I, gave my, uh, I gave my back to those who strike, it says, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Or Jesus being offered wine and myrrh in verse 23 that echoes Psalm 69, 21. For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Jesus' clothes being divided in verse 24, again, he is prefigured in Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. 18. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. 
Jesus being, Jesus being crucified with robbers. Verse 27, he's alluded to in Isaiah 53.12. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And then finally, Jesus being reviled in verse 27 fulfills Psalm 109 verse 25. I'm an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. See, again and again, Scripture is fulfilled again and again. God's redemptive plans are being carried out. And in all of this, Jesus heals himself to his Father. In all of this, he seeks out and fulfills his Father's will. And again, let's ask our question, what are we meant to learn here? What are we meant to see in Jesus' shame as a restrained king? Well, I think we're meant to learn the way of surrender. Realize Jesus is both our substitute, but he's our example as well. He's our example in holiness, 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. He's our example in love, John 13, 34. He's our example of humility, Philippians 2, 4. He's our example of serving one another, John 13, 3 and 14. And in our passage, we see that he's our example in surrendering ourselves, in yielding ourselves to God's will, even in trial, even in affliction. Uh, this, no doubt, was one of the applications that, that Mark's audience must have seen. Uh, when Mark writes his gospel, he's writing to persecuted Christians in Rome. He's writing to Christians under the heavy hand of Nero. And for them, Jesus' example is on the one hand an encouragement because their Savior suffered. On the other hand, his example is an exhortation to follow him, to, to heal themselves to the Father, even when a government is upon their shoulders. Dear friends, in the same way, Jesus' example is a help for us today. When we find ourselves under the heavy hand of affliction, when we deal with those who oppose us and persecute us, when we receive unjust and cruel treatment, when we're mocked and ridiculed for our faith, Jesus shows us the way, and the way is the way of surrender. It's the way of entrusting ourselves to our God. It's the way of yielding to God's will, even in affliction. Uh, consider 1 Peter 2, 21-23. Listen to what Peter says. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Dear friends, learn from Jesus' shame. Learn the way of surrender in affliction, in heartache, in grief, in distress, in trials. Learn to rest in your God. Learn to rest in His plans and His purposes. To rest knowing that He works all things for the good of those who are called to Him. Rest in Him as He tests and refines your faith. Rest assured that even through these trial, trials, He's 
conforming him more and more into the image of his son. Rest in him. Surrender yourself to him. Now, as I conclude, if you think about it, the way of surrender is really the way of the Christian. So the way of Christianity. In Mark 8, 34, Jesus tells us what it requires to be a disciple. This is the, the basics of discipleship. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In other words, this is a call to surrender. It's a call to die to yourself and to live for Christ. It's a call to, to lay down your own will and rest secure in His. Now, did you notice from our passage who the first person is to literally fulfill Mark 8.34? It's Simon of Cyrene, verse 21. Simon is compelled by the Romans to help Jesus. And so he picks up, not his own cross, but Jesus' cross, and he follows Jesus to the place of the skull, to the cross. And realize this traumatic encounter with Jesus leads to Simon being saved. It leads to him actually becoming a disciple of Christ. It leads him to spiritually taking up his cross and following Jesus. Now, how do we know that? Well, Mark mentions Simon's sons, Alexander and Rufus. And, and why does he mention the sons? Uh, most commentators agree because the church in Mark's day knew them. They were known. They were perhaps members even. And why did they know Simon and his family? The best answer is because they were saved. They were followers of Jesus. They were unashamed to own Jesus as their king. And so the amazing thing is here we see a man who is compelled to help a restrained, a rejected, and a ridiculed Jesus. He's compelled, he's forced to share in the shame of Jesus, in his humiliation. Yet after he meets this Jesus, he becomes an unashamed follower of Jesus. And even to this day, when the name Simon of Cyrene is mentioned, it's always associated with Jesus and his cross. I, I wonder, dear friends, will our names be associated with Jesus and his cross? Will we unashamedly own the shamed Jesus? Will we take up our cross and follow Jesus, no matter the cost, no matter the ridicule, no matter how difficult it is, will we own him as our king? In a sense, I'm asking you this question. Are you willing to die to death? Are you willing to put self to death? Are you willing to die to yourself, your own wants, your own desires, your own will, all for Jesus? And secondly, are you willing to put to death your name for Jesus? Are you willing to unashamedly own a ridiculed king as your king? Will you put your death, put your name to death so that you'd be known by the name of Christ? 
See, if we grasp the gospel, if we understood that Jesus became a substitute at the cross for us, if we understood that he bore our sins for our forgiveness, if he took our shame so that we would be acceptable before the Father, if he entered into death so that we would have a life, then surely, surely the cross becomes to us not just an instrument of shame, but it becomes a symbol to glory in. It becomes something to identify with. It becomes something to, to boldly exalt in our lives, dying to ourselves, so that we'd live for Christ. Oh, may the cross loom large on our lives so that we are known by the cross, known as those who choose to follow and serve a restrained, rejected, and ridiculed king. May what Paul says in Galatians 6, 14 become true of us, may become true of me. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. May that be our prayer this evening. Right, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come this evening recognizing that we cannot even begin to fully grasp the significance of this passage that records the crucifixion of our Lord. It's so weighty, it's so heavy, it, it bears weight on all of our lives, it should affect everything of us. And we would ask this evening that by your Spirit you would impress the truths of the cross, Christ's shame, His willingness to die for us. We pray that you would impress this upon our lives. That the cross would be for us a sign and a reminder of our great and many sins against you but that to the cross should become loved by us as the place where Christ gave himself for us. And would these realities not create within us a people who live under the shadow of the cross, who, who die to self and who own Christ as our King? Would you not help us? Would you not help each person? You know where each of us are in. You know the phase of our walk with you. You know the sin that we struggle with. You know the heartache and discouragement that weigh us down. Would you not just speak into every person's heart? Would you not draw each one to yourself? And would you not cause each one to bend the knee to Christ for His glory and ultimately, Father, for your glory? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.